Go ahead and pull out your Bibles and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to be continuing our study in Corinthians. Um, as we talked about last week, this chapter, 1 Corinthians 3, has been used by many to, to justify the understanding of carnal Christianity, that people can be saved, they can be redeemed, they can be in Christ, and yet they can continue on with a life of habitual sin, of ongoing, unrepentant sin. And, of course, we, we reject that. We don't believe that um, somebody can do that. We believe that, as God says in, in Scripture in Titus 3, that we are saved by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit comes in and makes us new and washes us and gives us new life. And yet, some, again, have said, well, there can be carnal Christians who continue on sinning despite the fact that they have been made new. And it's not too much of a jump to say, to go from affirming such a person as being in Christ to saying, well, this person really, what they're doing isn't sin at all. To go from saying, yes, you can be a believer, a, a sanctified child of God, and go continuing in your sin to saying, well, that's, that's not really sin. That's, that's okay. That's, it's made right by the blood of Christ. This week, I stumbled across a website that I didn't ever know existed. It really, in my opinion, shouldn't exist. It's a, an oxymoronic website in its name. It's called gaychurch.com. And this church is made, or this website rather, is, is made and designed for the sole purpose of helping you find an affirming church. Not in the sense that it's a church that will come and affirm the fact that even though we sin, we are still in Christ. All Christians would, would believe that. It's not affirming the fact that we need to love one another despite our, our shortcomings. But it is talking about finding a church that is affirming sin itself. Where we as individuals become the, the arbiters of truth. Where we get to decide how to understand the Bible and the passages of the Bible that talk specifically about our sin. And we get to redefine what is okay before the eyes of God. And you might be surprised to, to hear it. We have a number of these churches that are, are close to us. You can go in, you can type in your, your city, your zip code, and you can figure out, well, where can I go to find a church that will affirm my sinful sexual lifestyle? And even though we're in Utah and we are sheltered, quite a bit more than the rest of the, the country from such liberal thinking. From this point where we're at in this small church basin, up 20 minutes to Provo, you can find four churches that will affirm your sin openly, and, and they'll be okay with that. And they'll tell you it's okay to live life however you want. Go up into Salt Lake, and you find another 19 churches that say you can do whatever you want, that it's not sinful to contradict what the Word of God says. And then from Salt Lake up to Logan, there are yet another eight churches that will condone your, your, your decision to decide what sexual preference you have um, and a number of other things. It's not a far jump from saying that we can 
be in Christ and live however we want to saying that that lifestyle really, really isn't sinful at all. And of course, we want to have Scripture be our guiding source in all that we do, in all of our life and practice. And so we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and seek to understand this text in the way that, that Paul would have meant for it to be understood. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for your word, that it is a guiding force, that it is inspired, it is truth, and that we can take it to the bank. We can realize that it is from the Lord and it has been preserved by the Holy Spirit. God, I thank you for this faithful local body and for the way that you have, you have brought us all together and for the great rich history of this local body that it has been a, a church that is willing to stand firm on your word, even when it's not popular, even when the world has different standards, different ideas of how we should live. God, I pray that as we seek to understand your word more fully today, that you would open up our eyes, that you would illuminate your word, that we would have a, a more clear picture of how you would have us live in light of your word. God, I thank you for for who you are, for the fact that you are a good God who is perfect, who is never changing, who is perfect in holiness. God, help us to see you more clearly today. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. We looked at the first portion of this chapter last week, at the first four verses, and we're going to dip back into that. We're going to revisit that a little bit today and then carry on just a tad bit more. And as we do so, I want to, to point out two main points of, of what we're going to be looking at, two different main points that Paul had. First, we're going to look at Paul's rebuke of this first century Corinthian church. And then we're going to look at Paul's reminder to the same church. So we'll look at Paul's rebuke and Paul's reminder. Now, this Corinthian church, if they were known for anything, they were famous for anything, both in their time and our time today, looking back at biblical history, it would be that this church is known for their sin. They have a reputation for being associated with sin. We haven't quite gotten into the latter part of 1 Corinthians where Paul addresses their incest in chapter 5. In chapter 6, he talks about how they're taking each other to court. They're suing one another among themselves in their own body. Um, he gets into sexual immorality. He talks about how they're deprived of one another and tension within marriage and how marriages ought to work. He talks about how the the roles of gender are being confused in in First Corinthians eleven. He talks about how they were going to the Lord's table to get drunk. This was a church that had. No shortage of issues, no shortage of problems. It was a church that was known for their sin. They weren't known for being a mature church. They weren't known as a healthy church. Their reputation as being wicked and sinful and immature preceded them. That was how people would understand and recognize the church at Corinth. Before we jump into chapter 3, let's go back a little bit and let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15, as Paul lays out a couple of important terms. We looked at them last week and uh, the week before, but 
important terms on the list that we need to remind ourselves of as we look at chapter 3. So verse 14 of chapter 2 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. And so we see here that Paul takes these two different terms, natural and spiritual, and recognizes them as being opposed to each other. Um, Ephesians says that we are by nature children of wrath. That is who we are in our sinful spirits. We are born enemies of God, and naturally we are opposed to him. Naturally, we have a propensity to sin. We desire to sin. Nobody has to teach us when we're growing up how to sin. In fact, it's quite the opposite, right? We have to be taught how to obey. Um, By nature, we are children of wrath. We love our sin. We enjoy our sin. That is who we are by nature. This is contrasted to what Paul calls a spiritual man. A spiritual man, we need to understand as one who is of the Spirit, who is from the Spirit, does the things that the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, would have him to do. And so... As we jump into chapter 3, the very first verse, Paul comes out and he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infant of Christ. Now it's important that before we even really get started, before Paul comes at them with his rebuke, which is really a, a pretty harsh rebuke, that he addresses them as brethren. So we know right off the bat that we're dealing with spiritual people here in, in Corinth. Not spiritual in the sense that they are mature or, or holy or they have arrived in some kind of special sense of the word, but they are saved. They are bought with the blood of Christ. They are redeemed. They are regenerate Christians. We see that in a few places. So right here in verse 1, he calls them brethren. At the end of verse 1, he says that they are in Christ jump down to verse 5, and you'll see that they believed. Paul says that um, through servants, they had believed. Verse 6, he talks about how they experienced growth. And then in verse 9, at the end of our passage we're going to be looking at this morning, he says that they are, in fact, gods. He says, you are God's field, you are God's building, you belong to God. And that's important to remember as we're looking throughout this whole passage, because again, we're dealing with sin, right? with a church that is recognized and known for their sin. And so all throughout, Paul is reminding them, yes, I I recognize you as brothers. Yes, I recognize you as somebody who is in Christ, who has believed, who has actually experienced some form and some degree of growth. And yet, you you are God's building. You are God's field. But we have some issues that we have to address. We have some problems that we have that need to be brought out. And while Paul is affirming their salvation... There is no way that he would be seen by this website that I mentioned, gaychurch.com, as affirming, right? They wouldn't look at Paul and this text and say, yeah, he's, he's an affirming guy. He probably goes to an affirming church because he's not affirming their sin. He's affirming the fact that they are in Christ, their position in Christ. But he is rebuking them for their lifestyle, for the way that they, they live and their maturity and their development in the faith. So I want to look at uh, another passage of Paul's in Romans, Romans 8, 6 through 8. And again, we see this same kind of language used of spiritual and fleshly. Um, and 
kind of helps us set the, the picture for what we're dealing with here with these spiritual Christians in Corinth who need to be rebuked. Romans 8, 6 through 8 says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, just like we are in our natural state, right? For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We cannot please God when we are in the flesh, when we are dwelling and, and living and really walking and working out of that natural state, out of that fleshly state. So let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 3.1 and let's see what Paul says about their, their flesh and uh, their being spiritual. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Now, it's important to note, he doesn't say that they aren't spiritual men. Again, we've already established all throughout. He's reminding them, yes, you're spiritual. Yes, you're in Christ. Um, but he couldn't speak to them as if they were spiritual. Not saying they aren't spiritual. He couldn't speak to them that way. He had to speak to them as if they were still in their natural state, as if they were still of the flesh. Now, last week we talked about sanctification and the importance of realizing the difference in sanctification, that positionally we are sanctified if we are in Christ. If we have repented of our sin, if we have come to him in faith by his grace, then he has taken and he has sanctified us in the eyes of God. God looks at us and he sees us as perfect, as spotless, as, as children who have been adopted into his family. We are no longer children of wrath, but we are transferred into a kingdom of his glorious light. And he sees his perfect blood when he looks at us. However, practically, we still sin, right? Sanctification is a process. We are continually growing day by day, becoming more and more like him. We aren't automatically transferred into a, a sinless state in a practical sense the moment that we come to Christ. But instead, it is a, a process that we have to go through as Christians. And so when he's talking to them here and he's saying that I have to speak to you as if you are natural, as if you are fleshly, this would be a harsh rebuke. Not just a, a soft, kind of subtle rebuke, but it was a harsh rebuke. And it would shock them. It would catch their attention to say, I can't talk to you like you're a Christian. I'm not able to go to that level with you because you are immature. You guys are still acting as if you are infants in Christ. Now, remember that this church at Corinth, they greatly esteemed wisdom, right? And, and knowledge and what it was to, to know something and to learn something new. It was something that they highly valued. And so for Paul to rebuke them in this way would really cut deep to say, I can't even give you meat. I can't give you solid food, but I still have to spoon feed you. Not even spoon feed you. I have to bottle feed you like you're an infant, like you're a baby in Christ, saying you aren't ready. You can't handle it. You're too immature in Christ. And while we, we know and we understand that it's okay for babies to, to drink milk, right? That's what babies ought to be doing. And so Paul says that when I was with you, I, I gave you milk. Verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, and you were not able to receive it. Nothing wrong with that. That's the natural order of things, right? To give infants milk. But he goes on, he says, Indeed, even now you are yet 
unable. You are still fleshly. They ought to have progressed by this point. They, have, they ought to have gotten to the point where Paul doesn't have to bottle feed them, but he can actually give them the truth of the gospel in the way that he desires to give it to them. Think of a, a child doctor, a, a pediatrician, and how you go in to see a pediatrician, and he documents the growth and development of that child, their weight and their, their length. Length, right? Not height, because they can't stand up yet. But um, I guess when they're laying down on the table, it's length instead of height. And, and their development as, as little infants. And when they're not developing according to what they expect, then the doctor has concern. All three of our kids developed slowly as far as weight and length. And we'd go into the pediatrician and they could have gained two or three pounds and still not even been on the, the growth chart. They weren't even at 0%. And the pediatrician was concerned by that and showed great, great concern for their future growth and development based on the standards of where he thought they should have been at that point. And Paul has some sense of a, a spiritual growth chart when it comes to these Corinthians. These Corinthians that he himself was working among, right? He was there for a year and a half working with these Christians, pouring into them night and day. And he says, you guys aren't where you ought to be. He had a, a different understanding of where they should have been by this point. And their immaturity is really extending to such a degree that it is hampering and, and limiting the apostle's ability to teach them as he wants to. He wants to go deeper with them, but he's unable to because they're still sucking on a bottle. They're not able to, to grow and develop and to hear the things that he wants to teach to them. This is a, an issue that Paul had with several of his churches. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says um, that you guys are, are like children, not to be like children who are tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. But he goes on in verse 15, and he says, instead, you are to grow up in all aspects into him who is ahead, who is Christ. Using that same kind of picture, that same kind of terminology, that you're not to be little children, but you need to grow up. You need to get with the program, get with the picture, and, and figure it out. And that's where he's at with the Corinthians here, trying to get them to, to realize that their, their sin and their immaturity is, is having issues. And it's having an effect on their spiritual growth, their spiritual development. This sin issue, this immaturity issue in Corinth was manifested in divisions and in separation among themselves. That they were dividing into factions. They were becoming factious and not getting along with each other. So while we still haven't yet gotten into all the <laughs> meat of their sin, right, later on in 1 Corinthians... Uh, Paul's already brought up this issue of division and uh, factions among each other. Uh, we looked at this back in chapter 1. Let's revisit chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, and remind ourselves of these divisions that were going on amongst these Corinthians. He says, Now I exhort you, again, brethren, <laughs> let me exhort you, but remind you, you are in Christ, right? By the name of our Lord Christ, Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I 
am of Christ. These divisions were breaking up their, their body and they were taking, taking camps and making camps among themselves saying, well, this is the teacher I'm going to follow. This is the teacher I'm going to follow. And again, Paul brings it up here in 1 Corinthians 3 to, to point out that these divisions aren't okay, but they don't just come up out of nowhere. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not flesh. Are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? This jealousy, this strife that exists among you, that's not something that is a fruit of the Spirit, right? That is a fruit of the flesh. That is something that is an indicator of being in the flesh, of being in this natural state. Paul says in Romans 13, we see these same words used. Romans 13, 13, 14. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing, not in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but rather to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Again, division doesn't just come up out of nowhere, but jealousy and strife and selfishness and looking out for your own uh, desires and the way that, that you want things to be rather than considering each other as more important than yourself. These are things that lead to division, that lead to divisiveness, and that is not at all what the Lord wants for his body. He wants a body who is unified, who comes together, who is not marked by division, but who is one in unity. Now, in verse 4, we see the same concept that we saw back in, in chapter 1. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? This is the manifestation of their their immaturity. This is a manifestation of this jealousy and strife that they divide themselves and they say, no, Paul, Paul's my man. Or Apollos, he's the one that I'm going to follow after. Now, remember that Paul is the one who went in and he established this church. He planted this church. He traveled over 5,000 miles over the course of two different missionary journeys to come to this church and to see this church and to love on them and to pour into them. Again, he spent a year and a half with building them up and, and pouring into them. Uh, we looked not too long ago back at Acts chapter 18. Um, and in verse 8, it says that many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. That was a result of Paul's ministry. And it says even Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, was won over to the faith. And then when Crispus was won over to the faith, his replacement was also won over to the faith. They had two synagogue leaders who were won over to the faith all these people who were believing and being baptized as a result of the ministry of Paul. Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, right? Paul, who has a zeal that is unmatched. Even before he came to the Lord, he was zealous to the point of persecuting the Christians. And he came there and he was pouring into them and loving on them. And he had people who were grasping onto that and saying, no, Paul, he's, he's what I'm all about. I am going to stand behind Paul. But then after Paul left Corinth, this other guy, Apollos, came along and he started to minister to them. And Apollos, we remember, even before he came to Christ, even before he knew of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, he was a man who had a lot to, to boast about in his flesh. He was an eloquent man of eloquent speech. He was mighty in the scriptures 
and he was fervent in the spirit, speaking accurately the things concerning Jesus. That was before he knew of the death and resurrection of Christ. And there's no doubt in my mind that he was more eloquent a speaker than, than even Paul. He was somebody who was set apart in his ability to, to speak and to, to present a message and to defend his faith to the Jews. In Acts 18, 27, 28 says that he greatly helped those who believed through grace. So Paul came along, he planted this church, he established this church. And then Apollos, his great speaker, eloquent in speech and mighty in the scripture, he helped those who believed through grace. Verse 28 of Acts 18 says, For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was a Christ. He was an eloquent speaker, he was a debater, he knew his stuff, and he helped pour into these Christians after Paul had established them and taken off on his other missionary journeys. And so it's easy to see from a, a worldly perspective why they might get behind Paul or why they might get behind Paulus and say, man, these are, are men that I esteem, these are men that I want to be like. But it was causing division among them. And twice in verses 3 and 4, Paul says, this is just a sign that you're, you're mere men, that you divide over such things as, as this. And you say, oh, I'm of this camp, I'm of that camp. It's an, an indication that you are mere men, that you are still acting as you are not spiritual, but as if you are fleshly, as if you are carnal, um, as if you are of the, the natural state. And he was prevented from going on to, to meteor things as he wanted to do. Now in verse 5, we see uh, Paul's reminder to the Corinthian church. Verse 5 says, when, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. <clears throat> we remember right off the bat, right when he started this, this letter back in chapter 1 verse 2, that he addresses them as the church of God which is at Corinth. He doesn't say, you're, you're the Corinthian church. He could have, and there'd be nothing wrong with that. He says, no, you are the church of God, which is at Corinth. Not the church of Paul, not the church of Apollos. You are the church of God at Corinth. And so I think he wants us to, to remember, and he wants to bring back to the Corinthians' mind that God is the, the head of the church, and God will lead his bride. That they are people and he is the one who will lead them. He is the one who is taking responsibility for them. The church belongs to God, and he is absolutely committed to their growth. He is invested in their growth. I want to read to you from, from Hebrews, which may or may not have been written by Paul. Um, Hebrews twelve six through 8. And the author says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Boys. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He chastens those whom he loves. And so while he's... Corinthians are acting as Corinthians, right? That word had a meaning of being in sin because of the way that they acted. As they were people that they actually were positionally in Christ, 
God was going to do something about it. He was going to chasten those whom he loves and discipline those who are his. And in fact, at the end of verse 5, we see that it is the Lord himself who gave opportunity to each one. It is the Lord himself who redeems these people. He's the one who is doing the work in their lives. He's the one who is bringing them to salvation, giving them the, the faith to see, the eyes to see, to repent of, of their wickedness and of their sin. He is the one who is giving that um, to these Corinthian believers. Now, hopefully you men in here, you husbands, are familiar with Ephesians 5.25. I want to look at that that verse and the following verses as it relates to how Christ deals with his bride, how Christ deals with the church. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives. That's important. We should remember that. But... Let's look at why we should love our wives. Our love, husbands, for our wives should be a picture of Christ's love for the church. It says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he give himself up for her? Verse 26 says, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The Lord is one who sanctifies his bride, who sanctifies his church. He is concerned with the growth and development and sanctification of his bride. God will lead his bride. This is just one facet of of many facets of Paul's reminder to this Corinthian church. God is the one who will build up his church. However, we need to remember and, and recognize that He will do so through the means that he chooses. God is the one who builds his church, but he uses different means to do so. Uh, Think of Galatians chapter 6 and how Paul was writing to the Galatians, and he said that if any of you is caught in a sin, then he who is spiritual should come along and should restore him with gentleness and respect. It is the desire of God for the church to work within the church and for us to bear the burdens of one another. In 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is God-breathed, right? This is what we should be using to, to help each other. And it's to be used for correction, for teaching, for rebuking, and for the purpose that the man of God may be adequately equipped. That is our job as the church, to love one another, to encourage and to correct and admonish one another when necessary. It is God's purpose that he sanctify his church through his people, through those who who belong to him. And Paul alludes to that here in in verse 5. He says, what is Paul and what is Apollos? Not who is Paul, not who is Apollos, but what is Paul, what is Apollos? He's trying to depersonalize their their personalities, take the personalities out of it and point to the fact that God is the one who is doing the work. In fact, Paul and Apollos are just mere servants through whom you believed. They're just servants. Uh, word there is the same word for deacons. They're the ones who come along and, uh, and work and serve. And they are instruments that are used by God. They're tools that, that God uses. Um, nobody likes to be called a tool, right? That is... Uh, it's become a bad word in our modern vocabulary, and I'm not 
privy as to why in all aspects. So if I offended you by saying that, I'm sorry. It's not something that people really embrace or like to be called, right? But Paul here says, no, that's all that we are. We're just mere men. We are just tools that are being used by, by God, by the master workmen. This week I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw a, a post that Travis shared of, of Mark and Jess's work on some ceiling and it was beautiful. They had shiplap with all kinds of intricate details and cuts and designs and all kinds of stuff that I could never do, right? But Travis didn't take a picture of his table saw or his tape measure and post that on Facebook because... Once again, I could take that same table saw and tape measure and make a disastrous mess that wouldn't be worthy of any kind of Facebook post. But it was beautiful and intricate, and he posted that to, to put glory on the workmen themselves, not on the tools that, that developed and designed that, that piece. Um, Paul realizes he, he is nothing. Apollos, this great eloquent speaker, he is nothing, but it is God who is the one who is giving the, the opportunity. This is God who is coming along and saving these lost individuals. Uh, we looked this last week in our, our Acts Bible study, Acts 19.11, which says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Um, people were taking handkerchiefs and, and rags and stuff that Paul touched, and other people were being killed by it. It had nothing to do with Paul says that God was the one who was performing these extraordinary miracles, and he just happened to be doing it at the hands of Paul. Paul was the one who he was using as an instrument, as a tool at that time, for God to bring glory to himself. And 2 Corinthians 11.23 says, Are they servants of Christ? That's what, what Paul is asking. He says, I speak as if I am insane, but I more so. He's saying, I am more of a servant of Christ than these others. He's boasting not in himself, but in the fact that he is a servant. He is a slave to the master craftsman, to the one who is doing the work behind the scenes. Um, no person in Scripture that I'm aware of had a, a greater understanding of this aspect than John the Baptist, who was his whole goal and desire in life was to point people to Jesus. That's what he was, right? He was the one to say, hey, the Lord, the King, the Messiah is here. Me, it's him. He must increase and I must decrease. And that's the same attitude that Paul is trying to um, convince these Corinthians of. What is Paul? What is Apollos? Nothing. We're just servants that God happens to use for his own glory. Now, it's easy for us to look back a thousand years and say, yeah, that's what Paul said. That's what Apollos said. But let's bring it in just a little bit more and remind ourselves that that God has called each one of us to service. I know that this passage has a specific context talking about these leaders in the church, about this ministry of, of church planting and establishing this church in Corinth, but God has really given each one of us a, a call to service, and we have a responsibility to, to love one another and to serve one another. And we must realize that God doesn't use each and every one of us in the same way. Just as we don't go into our, our garage or our shop or our shed or whatever and grab any random tool for any random job. We have specific tools that we use for specific jobs. And God uses each one of us in a specific and a unique way. In verse 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. 
Again, they had different aspects of ministry. Paul was the one who went in and started the church. Apollos came after, and he was helping to grow into water and to bring up this church to maturity. They each had different roles that God was using them in. This also helps us to see that uh, preaching the gospel isn't just a a one-off thing. We don't just share the gospel with somebody and then say, oh, well, you know, I, I played my part. I did my role. But it's a, a continued process. Uh, Paul planted, but Apollos needed to come alongside and he needed to water afterwards. Um, some studies have said that before somebody actually embraces Christ and turns from their sin and becomes a Christian, they hear the gospel on average seven times. So we don't just leave somebody after we have preached the gospel to them, shared Christ with them, and expect that's enough. That's going to be satisfactory. Even after somebody comes to Christ, we disciple them to Christ, but then they need to be discipled in Christ. Um, this church, church growth process is indeed a, a process, and it's a process on an individual basis, going back to uh, practical or progressive sanctification that we are becoming more and more like Christ. We are growing up into him who is our head. It is a, a process that takes time. And I know from personal experience, you can't just take a seed and put it in the ground and expect stuff to grow. I've tried that too many times, have too many failed gardens in a practical, literal sense to, to know it needs cultivation. It needs somebody to come alongside and to disciple it and to pour into it and to water it so that it can grow up in the way that it ought to be. Verse 7 says, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Again, we're reminded it is God who, who loves his church, God who cares for his church, God who's going to build up his church. And while he uses means to do so, we need to be careful of how we view those means, that those means don't get in the way and become the focus of what it is that, that we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to accomplish the glory of God. In verse 8, says, now he who plants and he who waters are one. Well, what does that mean, that they are, are one? They're, they're doing two different things, but they have one purpose. Their purpose is to honor and to glorify God, to put the, the focus, the spotlight, the highlight on Jesus himself. But each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Thomas Schreiner says, even though all growth comes from God, the work of ministers is not negligible or considered to be meaningless or insignificant. The labor of ministers, the quality of work exercise, will be assessed by God and rewarded accordingly. Saying that all growth is ascribed to God does not imply that there is no responsibility for ministry. God will evaluate the quality and work and apportion rewards accordingly. And we'll see that even as we get deeper into 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And later, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says this. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not just ministers, not just church planners, not just Paul and Apollos, but all of us. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what each has done, whether good or bad. Ouch, right? And something that, that should cause us to, to perk up a little bit and pay attention that each one of us is going to 
be judged according to our deeds. We're going to stand and appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I pray that when we do, we will be like Paul and Apollos, who are one. The one who plants, the one who waters, is one. They have one purpose, one desire to honor Christ. And I, I pray and I do believe that that's the, the atmosphere that we have here at this church. Right now, we have women who are sacrificing their, their ability to be in here, to be in the, the nursery, to watch after little kids. We have men who are on security, making sure that we can stay safe. You know, got Joseph back there playing around on the keyboard, doing all kinds of techie stuff, right? Um, people that snuck in this week to clean up the church and to take care of and maintain the church and snuck out with any, without any recognition. We are all working for, for one purpose, to the glory of God and to the honor of God. And on that same note, we need to be on guard not to have this mentality, this attitude that the Corinthians had of lifting up and exalting men because that's all, all we are. We're just men and women, right? We're not worthy of exaltation. Um, we need to be careful. We need to guard against that mentality. And I think we can do it even in our day, that we can fall into that trap of dividing ourselves into different groups and different factions and saying, well, I am of John MacArthur, or I'm of David Jeremiah, or Jeff Durbin, or Joel Beakey, all these different ministers, these pastors, these celebrity pastors, and saying, well, I am of that person, and even taking it to the extent of saying, I believe everything that they believe, and they can't be wrong in any respect, in any regard, in any teaching, any doctrine. And in fact, some have fallen into sin, and their people who say, I am of that person, won't recognize that as, as sinful. There are celebrity pastors who have fallen from grace and have been found to not be um, able to be in that position of, of pastor or an elder. They're not biblically qualified, and yet people will still lift them up and say, well, I'm going I'm to follow after them anyway because I like the way that they dress or I like the way that they preach. Or, I like the way that they teach. They are gifted men. That doesn't make them above the word of God. We need to be on guard against that temptation. And then on the, the flip side, we need to guard ourselves against any, any, any grace that's, that's shown to us. Um, those, again, we're all called to service, right? We're all called to serve the church of God. And it, it comes along with the territory that when we serve, we can allow ourselves to be lifted up, to be exalted, to think, you know, I came in and I did a good job cleaning those toilets, right? Um, God really needs me to, to wipe those toilets down. Um, that's not true. We can't allow ourselves to think that we are great for doing the things that we ought to be doing. We are called to service of, of our God. And we don't deserve any pats on the back for doing the things that we ought to be doing. When my kids first learned how to tie their shoes, it was kind of cool, right? They're like, hey, Dad, look, I, I tied my shoe. I did it. I did a good job. And I say, okay, well, good job, buddy. But how inappropriate would it be for me to say, hey, hey, Jerry, look at, look at me. I tied my shoe. Didn't I do great? Um, that's kind of expected, right? And for us to serve the body of Christ, it is expected. Um, an employee doesn't go to his employer and say the same thing. Hey, hey, I did a good job today. Aren't you proud of me? I did what I was supposed to do. Aren't you going to 
pat me on the back? Well, no, that's, that's why you get paid, right? Um, and as Christians, we are called to serve God's church. Verse 9 says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Paul recognizing that the church at Corinth belongs to God. It is something that God has built up, something God has developed and cultivated. And while he had a part in it, um, God is the one who gives a growth. God is the one who gives an increase. He is the one who deserves all the praise and all the honor. Paul loved this church at Corinth. And he lovingly and painstakingly poured into them. Again, a year and a half stuck around with this church. That's a little bit above average for, for Paul. And many believed, many were baptized. And Apollos faithfully came along and he watered that church. He poured into that church. And he gave of himself to that church. Anything from you. I was, I was working all the time. Night and day I was working, is what he said to the Thessalonians. And he worked while he was in Corinth too. To the Ephesians, he said, day and night I was there. I was ministering among you. I was teaching Christ in the synagogues. I was going house to house proclaiming the goodness of the Lord. Paul laid it all out for his ministry. But it's God who gives the increase. God is the one who gives the growth. He deserves all the praise and all of the glory. He is the one who made salvation possible. He is the one who provided the truth of the gospel that Paul and Apollos preached. He is the one who took on flesh and became a man and lived a perfect life without sin. He is the one who laid down his life for us and took our sins upon himself. That is why he deserves the glory, because he paid it all. He is the one who took our fines and nailed them to the cross, took our sin debts, and took care of them. And while we are called as ministers, as ambassadors for the gospel, we have to recognize that we're just, we're just along for the ride. We're just tools. We're just instruments in the hands of a God who is doing something great. 2,000 years removed, we are sitting here talking about this man, Jesus. He wasn't just a man. He is God incarnate. That's cool. And we need to realize our place in that, that we are counted blessed to be able to have any part in what God is doing. But we don't deserve any praise for that. We don't deserve any honor for that. God is the one who gives the glory. And as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask a, a few questions of us. Um, get us thinking a little bit. We have been called to, to serve the body, each one of us. Paul says in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through flesh love one another. How can you do that this week? How can you love one another? How can you serve the body of Christ? We've all been given a mandate to plant and to water the gospel. Second Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Who might you share that word of reconciliation with this week? Who in your life do you know that isn't yet reconciled to God? That you can, as an ambassador of Christ, share that news with. And finally, we're all called to, to be unified, to be united as one body. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Is there any kind of division that you're aware of in, in our body, in your heart, that needs to be addressed either in person or in your heart before God? Let's make sure we take care of that so we can be a, a body that is unified, that is glorifying to God, not divisive like this Corinthian church was, saying, I'm of this guy, I'm of that guy. We need to realize that we are one body in Christ. He is our head and we should seek and strive to, to grow up in all things into him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are your bride, that you take and you shape and you fashion us and you grow us and you sanctify us. God, I thank you for the body of Christ, the universal body in this local body here in, in Pacing, Utah, at Orchard Hills Bible Church, that we are yours. We belong to you, that we have one head. We, we would grow up into you, that we would become more and more like you, that we would be a body that is continually unified, that we wouldn't fight over silly, foolish things. We wouldn't fight over important things. We would be united in all things, that we would be godly representatives of, of you, that we would act as children of God, and that we would walk in the Spirit. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, and pray that, that he will guide us as we go our separate ways this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.